Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Hello and welcome to Halley History Discussed You Want to Hear. Mr. D here again today with another short. Uh, this one is on the unit of World War I and women's suffrage. An odd pairing I know that many people probably don't put together, but... You know, I've, I've dabbled with the idea of putting the, the women's suffrage ideas with the progressives, but I like doing it with World War One because, you know, A, they do happen together at the same time. Um, you know, the, the real peak moments of it, women's suffrage and the granting of the 19th Amendment and, this, and the right to vote. But, you know, and, and, and that's the first reason I like to put them together. The second reason is, is you can't separate uh, a political issue like that from the time period of the war and what it was like at home. So that's why I put them together. So, this unit. First thing I'm going to start with is the election of 1912. William Howard Taft, Roosevelt's, Theodore Roosevelt that is, his vice president, handpicked by him, took over and uh, won the election of 1908 and became president from 1908 to 1912. Spoiler alert, he doesn't win the election for his second term. He takes over and he, he for the most part, picks up about the mantle of a lot of things that Roosevelt uh, was doing, but not enough to Roosevelt's liking. And so Roosevelt actually returned from several adventures overseas and uh, his personal life and actually desired to run again in 1912. The issue for him will be the Republicans want to continue with Taft. They don't want Roosevelt back. Uh, Roosevelt's continual fighting of corruption regardless of party and some of the business interests in the Republican Party probably kept him from that nomination. Um, so Roosevelt kind of like a kid stomps off as much as I like the guy and says, I'm going to go make my own party and it'll be the bull moose party. So there's two of the guys running in the 1912 election and, and we have the Republican party, the bull moose party, and we can't forget about the Democrats, the other major party. Okay. Um, Woodrow Wilson will get the nod for his party and he's kind of an unknown quantity. He was a college professor at Princeton of history and, uh, the governor of New Jersey, and really, he's he's not as well known as you know his other two competitors, being Taft and Roosevelt. Now, usually in election, Republicans and Democrats on the presidential side of things for elections are the only ones that have a shot at winning. But Roosevelt, being as popular as he was, had a real shot to to do well in this election. Um, the campaign will be brutal. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt will will insult Taft on numerous occasions. The two had been very very good friends before, but the issue becomes you know. They can't really work out um, some of the differences, at least in Roosevelt's perspective. And Taft will even be seen breaking down in tears at some points. Uh, Roosevelt being so, so cruel to him in public, and it's a really nasty campaign. Uh, Wilson kind of this is good for him, right? We're going to split the the Republican vote basically because Roosevelt was a Republican, even though the Bull Moose Party is supposed to be the Progressive Party. Um, it'll split the election, and basically what happens is Wilson scrapes up what's left after the vote's been split by Roosevelt and Taft, and he will become president in 1912. Wilson will end up serving all the way till 1920, so he will serve two terms. Um, 
he will continue some of the progressive policies of Taft. Uh, we'll see a couple amendments passed during the overlap between Taft and Wilson's administrations of um, the, the 16th Amendment, which granted federal income tax. Uh, the right for the federal government to tax the incomes of Americans, which was kind of seen as a pretty radical thing at the time, and some of the states and some Americans weren't crazy about it. And uh, you have the 17th Amendment, which allowed for the direct election of senators, um, and then we'll eventually get the 18th Amendment, which outlawed the sale of alcohol towards the end of the Wilson administration into the 20s. So there's definitely some overlap of ideals between uh, the administrations, but there's also going to be some differences too. And then in Europe, we're going to get to kind of the crux of this, which is the First World War. Uh, in 1914, the First World War breaks out in Europe and will be the largest mass outpouring of violence known to mankind up until that time, unrivaled until the Second World War. I want to be clear, I'm going to probably go over my time this because I'm a huge World War One nut and I really enjoy it, but I'm going to do my best here. Um, the four things, the four causes we usually want students to know, regardless of American history or global history, uh, can be spelled out in M-A-I-N, main militarism, alliances, imperialism, and nationalism, being the four underlying causes for the First World War. Uh, militarism, first off, let's start there. You have nations building up their armies and navies to massive sizes in Europe. Again, they're at the peak of their power. Europe as a continent. Um, they are really taken off. They're, they're, they're doing things around the world. They're, they're at their high watermark of wealth and power. So nations like Germany, France, and Britain, and Russia in particular, are building up these massive militaries that, uh, you know, when, when you have it there, sometimes you want to take it out to play. Um, and then the A, alliances. This one's huge. Um, throughout the late 19th century and into the 20th century, you have guys like Otto von Bismarck of Germany and others creating these intricate, complicated alliance systems where, you know, each country's got a friend of a friend in this, and when you attack one, others are going to get involved. And it became so complex that no two countries could no longer go to war in the 20th century. You would be dragging other people in. Um, the alliances were often made along lines of, like, similarities, nationality, ethnicity, as I'll get into in a little bit. So um, that made things more complicated. You also have imperialism being a cause. These countries are competing for colonies around the world. Germany only becomes a, a unified country in 1870, and it's kind of looking to take their place in the world stage. They feel like they have the military and the power. They just you know, beat the French in the Franco-Prussian War in the 1870s, so they feel like they want to really stretch that power, and they deserve more credit on the world stage, uh, and they feel like they're not getting it. So, you know, that competition and imperialism really plays into the First World War, too. And last but not least, what I think is the biggest, biggest cause, because it's at the root of all the other three ones, is nationalism. Nationalism is a deep sense of pride in your country, an unhealthy amount, where you think your country does everything so much better that you need to show other people how to do it. And uh, it's a nationalistic standpoint that leads you into a massive war like this. And it, it's where many of the alliances are created, too. So we got M-A-I-N for the underlying causes of World War One. The United States is pretty much absent from all this because uh, they're isolated by a nice moat known as the Atlantic Ocean from Europe. So how did this war start? Well... You know, a lot of people have been thinking the big European war was coming. Um, some people suggested it never happened because everybody was so economically tied together. But it, it did happen, nevertheless, in 1914. How does it start? Well, you need a spark to ignite these four underlying causes. And that spark will come in a region of the world known as the Balkans. The Balkans, if you want to think about where this is, think Greece. Think Albania. Think across the sea from Italy, okay, across the Adriatic there. That is where you will find the Balkans. 
Okay, And you have this country known as Serbia, who is this little kind of upstart country, a new country, very proud, very nationalistic. And the Balkans are kind of complex because the borders aren't exactly drawn along the lines of who belongs where and with who. And I can get super complicated here, but I'm going to try to keep it simple. Basically, what you have are a bunch of Slavic peoples, which are kind of Eastern European ancestral to the Balkans, Slavic peoples, who are tied up in another country called Austria-Hungary. Austria-Hungary was a dual empire. doesn't exist anymore. And their territory pushed into a large chunk of the Balkans. So a lot of Slavic people are living in this largely Germanic-led country. Remember, Hitler was uh, not even German. He was Austrian. But Austrians were considered Germanic peoples, okay, similar to Slavic peoples. So the Slavs didn't have their own kind of large nation like the Germanic peoples did, and they wanted one. You had Slavic countries like Serbia, but there's a lot of Serbs and other Slavs living in Austria-Hungary, and the Slavic peoples in places like Serbia feel like those Slavic peoples within Austria-Hungary are not treated well and deserve to be treated better. Now, Serbia can't go up to Austria-Hungary, punch them in the nose, so to speak, or invade and take that territory. They're not strong enough to do that. They're not a big enough country. Austria-Hungary is considered a pretty big power at the time. Okay, And so what will happen is they'll resort to things like terrorism, unformal warfare, assassination, and one assassination in particular happens in 1914 in Sarajevo. The heir to the throne, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie, will be traveling in Sarajevo, uh, which is close to near where kind of uh, Serbia is in the Balkan part of the empire. And they will be driving in their car. Um, a bomb is thrown at the car. Archduke kind of deflects it, ducks behind the door. Bomb explodes. Assassination attempt fails. But there's another assassin down the road who kind of stomps off walks away you know he's disappointed the the assassination attempt did not play out and he goes to a cafe to basically kind of wear off the day um the archduke visits the hospital visits the hospital of and uh leaves and then his as they're driving away the driver takes a wrong turn and tries to put the car in reverse and the car stalls in front of the same cafe that this assassin is in his name is Gavelio Princep Princep can't believe what he's seeing. He runs out. He shoots the Archduke and his wife, killing them both, and they're both pronounced dead. So immediately, Austria-Hungary's ticked. Serbia's been poking them with the stick, as they see, for forever, and it's time to teach these Slavs a lesson. So Austria-Hungary will send an ultimatum to Serbia, okay? And this ultimatum is, is really designed to be rejected. They want the Serbs to reject it. The Serbs, surprisingly, actually agree to everything in the ultimatum, except for one provision. Uh, it was that Serbian citizens could be tried in Austrian courts, which... They couldn't tolerate. Now, here's where the alliances come in. Austria-Hungary would never have sent that message to Serbia if they didn't have a big bad brother, Germany, arguably the most, uh, the best land army in the world at the time, striving for their place at the table, ready to challenge France and Britain. There are other two kind of enemies-ish looking at them, at least France anyways. France has been dying to get back at Germany for the Franco-Prussian War. They want revenge too, so that's how they'll get in. The Serbians have a big bad brother too, though who see themselves as the protector of the Slavic peoples. To the east, the Russian Empire, the Romanov dynasty, Tsar Nicholas. They see themselves as the protector of the Slavs. The Serbs wouldn't be doing what they were doing with you know the terrorism and the assassinations if they didn't have a big bad brother either. So the, both Austria-Hungary and Serbia feel confident in doing this stuff in this dance because they each have a big bad brother. So now this went from Austria-Hungary and Serbia to Austria-Hungary um, fighting Serbia, 
to Austria-Hungary and Germany fighting Serbia and Russia. How does France get involved? Well, to be honest with you, France wanted to get back at the Germans for a long time for the embarrassment of the Franco-Prussian War. And they're ready to get some of the territory they lost back. And they've been helping the Russians uh, build railroads and their industry and finances and all sorts of stuff in their own country for a very long time. So they kind of became a natural ally with the Russians. Britain's the one country here we're not sure how they... They're going to get involved. But basically, the Germans will go through Belgium to get to France. Uh, they're trying to knock France out of the war quickly so they can then fight the Russians on the other front. And they invade Belgium, innocent little Belgium in the process. And the British say, ah, ah, that's enough. So that's how we get you know, the war to start. What's the war like? Massive, massive outpouring of violence. Uh, the warfare begins in the open. You have old generals and old tactics being used in this conflict that make no sense with the modern technology. This is where the Industrial Revolution goes to war and killing is on a massive scale. It starts in the open, but so many men are dying that the militaries figure out, we've got to go underground. We've got to dig trenches. We've got to prevent this loss of life a little bit. So 1914, the casualties are so high, um, but they will decrease by 15, 16, 17. Still super high, still awful, um, but trenches are a better protectorate than being in the open. By 1918, last year of the war, things open again and the casualties spike up to astronomical numbers again. Um, the war is known for the coming of age of, of the machine gun and artillery, which will do much of the damage, and even poison gas. So that was kind of my explanation of World War I crash course. So I want to get to how does the U.S. play into this? So the Germans are looking for ways to win the war, and they'll begin this little thing called unrestricted submarine warfare. They can't compete with the British Navy, which is blockading them into their nation, and they can't get any supplies. So they're going to start using their submarines to sink merchant shipping, sink supplies coming to um, Great Britain and France from the United States. And they see the United States as a problem because the U.S. is saying, hey, we're neutral, we're staying out. Woodrow Wilson wins his elections, uh, his re-election on, you know, I kept the U.S. out of war. The United States wanted no part of this war. Okay, uh, there's over 500 German newspapers printed in German in America at the time. America's a nation of immigrants. They don't want to get involved. Okay, at least Woodrow Wilson doesn't. But they're going to be pulled into this war. So Germany's sinking American merchant shipping, and they'll sink a very famous ship known as the Lusitania. Now, let me be very clear. The United States does not get involved in World War One after the sinking of the Lusitania. Many people think that it's like, oh, Lusitania sunk. Like Pearl Harbor, we go to war. No. Woodrow Wilson demands the stoppage of unrestricted sub-warfare. The Germans say, okay, we can't take fighting another nation in this war. So they listened and they stopped for a little while after 1915 when the Lusitania was sunk. Unfortunately, in 1917, the Germans become desperate again. They decide they're going to start unrestricted submarine warfare. The problem is that's going to bring the U.S. in. So they try this weird plan to keep the U.S. out and ask the Mexicans through the Zimmerman in this telegram that will become known as the Zimmerman telegram. They ask Mexico, hey, will you attack the U.S., reconquer all the territory in the southwest you lost? It'll keep the U.S. from coming over. We'll send you money. You'll be our ally. Everything will be great. Mexico is just coming out of their own revolution and mopping that up, so they're in no place to really do it. They did consider it, but they kind of politely tell the Germans, no, thank you. Now, this note comes to light because the British intercept the message to code it and send it to the Americans. Uh, many Americans think it's a hoax because, you know, the British would definitely want the American help in the war, officially with troops overseas. But then the Germans and the, uh, the foreign diplomat, Arthur Zimmerman, comes out and says, nope, I sent that note. And the Germans um, completely are honest. Yep, we sent it. So the U.S. enters the war. 
As they enter the war, Russia departs. Okay, so the Russians leave the war as the U.S. comes in, which is really good for the Allied powers. They needed it. Uh, Russia will be going through their own revolution, uh, will become known as the Bolshevik Revolution, and they turn into the Soviet Union, so that's a big effect of this war. Now, what was life like at home during the war? Well, Woodrow Wilson is one of these presidents that, I'm going to be honest and my bias comes through here, he doesn't really like criticism and he thinks that this criticism of him the war and his administration will hurt the war effort so he passes two uh along with congress passes two acts the espionage and sedition act which essentially give the government the right to go after people who are um you know speaking out against the war uh in an overly aggressive way hurting the draft uh the exact wording of the espionage uh excuse me the sedition act contains something to the effect of anyone who says anything profane abusive or scurrilous about the american flag the army the government the constitution basically anybody who says anything bad about the government in this time of war can be prosecuted uh so it's a restriction of free speech during a wartime now the constitution many people argue does have the language to allow america to do this so long as the rights are given back after the war has ended, okay, in the time of declaration of war, um, you know, the president and the government can use their powers to win the greater war at hand, a lot of people agree with that, some some don't see it in that language, I'm not here to pick a side, I'm just saying what the argument is, we see this in the Supreme Court, Shank v. United States and Debs v. United States, both are examples of the Supreme Court um, gets two individuals, Eugene V. Debs, our troublemaker there again from the Pullman strike, and Arthur Shank, who are both individuals that they are arguing that this war is immoral and it's wrong, each kind of taking their own angle to do it. And it's a very, very unpopular stance during this time of war. And the Supreme Court will argue in both men's cases that they side with the government. They say, yep, even the most stringent protection of free speech would not allow someone to yell fire in a crowded movie theater, and your speech cannot create a clear and present danger or a panic. So they actually side with the government saying this is totally fine, and both will actually do time in jail. Um, those laws are still in the books today, by the way. So Shank v. United States, very important Supreme Court case, you should remember. Debs v. United States is a good one, too. There's also tons of rationing of certain products so the troops at the front can, can have more. Um, the United States will be the final kind of bullet in the gun for the Allies that pushes the Germans over the limits. Uh, the Germans will throw one last punch in 1918, but they can't. They just can't stop the tide of the Americans, and they'll eventually lose the war to the Allies. Uh, there's a lot of propaganda in America, you know, getting people to do and, and to join the war effort, to sign up, uh, to ration, to save things, all kinds of propaganda. You know, buy war bonds, support the war effort. You'll see this all happen again in World War II, as well as things like women's working, uh, women working in factories, too. So the end of the war, near it, Woodrow Wilson puts out his 14-point plan, which is basically a list of, you know, here's how we avoid this again in my plan for peace. Um, the European powers will not take to this kindly because they feel the United States is a Johnny-come-lately, hasn't been along, uh, involved long enough, and does not deserve to sort of call the shots at the end when they didn't pay the price France and Britain did. And France and Britain, in France in particular, at the Treaty of Versailles negotiations, will want to punish Germany deeply. So A, this cannot happen again, and B, kind of exact their pound of flesh. Um, and it's a complete debacle uh, it, from the U.S. kind of perspective, because they don't really want to listen to what Woodrow Wilson has to say on a lot of occasions. Um, they will listen on some things, and one of those is the League of Nations. This is your debacle. The League of Nations would be the early version of the United Nations, where uh, nations were supposed to come together and resolve their conflicts um, peacefully, you know, without the exchange of bullets. You know, we didn't want this war happening again. And this was Woodrow Wilson's brainchild. 
Unfortunately, the U.S. has not joined the League of Nations. This, uh, the Senate does not ratify the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, Wilson negotiated it without really Republican input or you know anybody else's input from the United States, and they kind of took that as a little personal. And people also saw the League of Nations involving the U.S. and other conflicts again, and so they wanted to avoid it completely. So really all the Treaty of Versailles did was establish a League of Nations that uh, was ineffective, didn't have any teeth to stop any you know real-world problems. And also, I want to point out the United States didn't join at all. So it was like, you know, it's like having a party and people show up at your house and say, oh, I can't, you know, I can't host a party. Sorry, I got to go somewhere else. Bye. So that's uh, that's pretty significant that the Treaty of Versailles will eventually create and sow the seeds for the Second World War. They really are one world war with about a 20-year halftime. So I'm way over my time, but that's okay. So now I'm going to get into women's suffrage. So while this is all happening... And long before, women are pushing for the right to vote. Since the Seneca Falls Convention of 1848, you have women like Susan B. Anthony, Rochester's very own, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and there's plenty of others I could point out. Um, when African Americans get the right to vote during Reconstruction, this is a big blow to the women's uh, voting movement because, you know, when they see the 15th Amendment passed, they kind of are like, well, we could have taken that extra step. Other Western states are giving women the right to vote. Um, Wyoming, the one in 1869, I believe they give women the right to vote. I'll have to look that up, make a correction. Also, correction from earlier, it was Charles Shank. I looked it up, not Arthur Shank and Shank of the United States. My bad. Back to women. So, you know, um, this upset women and even kind of had some debates between Susan B. Anthony and Rochester's other very own Frederick Douglass had some pretty intense debates over that, um, so the National American Women's Suffrage Association forms, and they will kind of be the ones that the, the organization that will be seen as the crowning jewel, the big push for the campaign. And their plan is to win from state to state to grant women the right to vote. The idea is, look, if this even ever becomes an amendment, we're going to need three quarters of the states to pass it or agree with it. So let's start working the states now. If we can give, you know, more than half the states to to give us the right to vote, maybe the federal government looks at that and says, well, maybe it is time. Now, the one thing about this strategy is it's kind of slow. You're, you're literally going from state to state lobbying for the right to vote, so it will take time. You can't get it all in one foul soup like you would if you went right for the federal government. We'll see that division later. Many states in the West are the first to go down, Wyoming being the first. Um, reason being is women out West, you know, new culture, you don't have some of the Eastern eastern old structures of culture that kind of keep women down what a woman should be and so you know the idea is in the west you got a little more opportunity to influence people with new governments being formed by world war one there's new leadership stanton and anthony unfortunately have passed on and won't get to see the 19th amendment passed and new leadership will take over some women like alice paul are absolutely tired of the the kind of the old dogs or the old guard of the National uh, Women's Suffrage Association taking a long time to get this passed. They want to go right for the federal government. They want to go right for the president, Congress, uh, congressmen, senators. They want this done much, much quicker. So Alice Paul actually forms her own national, the, the National Women's Party. And, um, you know, the leadership from the, the National Association of Women's Suffrage um, was head up by Carrie Chapman Catt from 1910 to 1918. 17 states agreed um, to give women the right to vote. So that was pretty significant. So it was working. It was just taking time. So there even was a lot of division within this organization. But back to Alice Paul and the National Women's Party. Fascinating woman, by the way. Um, she, she comes up with this, you know, the picking of the White House ideas, um, going right for the federal government, organizes one of the largest marches in the history of Washington, D.C. to protest and ask for the right to vote. Um, 
they they have this uh, this idea of the silent sentinel, which are women with uh, these huge, massive um, broadsides outside, and they you know they wear their sashes and everything for the National Women's Party's colors, and, and some of the signs are pretty scathing, and go after Woodrow Wilson and point out his hypocrisy pretty pretty well. Uh, my favorite one is um, you know Mr. Wilson, you say that. You know, you you feel for the German people who are denied a say in their government because they have a king and a monarch, but yet you have half the population here who doesn't get a say in their government, and that's women. And I think that sign was very powerful, and some of these are really, really good to look at. Um, during the, that large march, I want to point out that some marches were even attacked by men, and in uh, the police officers not doing much about it. You can see this scene in um, Iron Jawed Angels. Really great HBO special to, to show the time period and sort of the the um, disagreements here over this whole image of, uh, image of women's suffrage and the reason that they're the men are so upset is because a they probably don't women they probably don't want women to have the right to vote uh, these men who attack some of the marches and second there's a big feeling that how dare you do this during a time of war there's Americans dying overseas we need to focus on that right now let's put this in the back burner and Alice Paul's like no you know this this is the time for liberty we've waited long enough um, and so they're arrested for obstructing the sidewalk and this is where it gets really fascinating because not one of them uh, they've kind of given a plea a plea deal where they can pay like a small fine and get off but Alice Paul um, convinces everyone and they probably all came to this with their own admission that they were all going to plead guilty they didn't want to admit they did anything wrong because they didn't believe that they did and that they had the first amendment rights the freedom of speech and in jail alice paul begins a hunger strike which is a common method of protest where you refuse to eat until restitution is made and things are made right and the the government actually tries to send um, psychiatrists to her to get her to prove that she's insane for this. Uh, what ins- what person that was sane would do this? But uh, they assess her, and she's completely sane. Um, she's placed in a straitjacket. She's force fed raw eggs because they can't let her die on her watch. And this is this gets pretty rough. Eventually, the pressure from Paul in jail and, and even her time before and after, uh, and Carrie Lane Chapman Cat, who's the head of the of the uh, the other organization, the National American Women's Suffrage Association. Their pressure will eventually change Wilson's stance by late 1918, and by 1919, the amendment passes and is ratified by the states in 1920. So we're coming up on the 100th anniversary this summer, I believe it is. So really a transformative moment. Um, It's over 70-some-odd years of work by all those who came before, Lucretia Mott, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. The work finally gets picked up. The mantle gets picked up and driven home by 1920, and women are given the right to vote. So this is all happening during the First World War, a very, very transformative time for the United States. So um, I'm over on my time, did the best I could to try to wrap that up within 20 minutes, but I mean, it looks like about 27 minutes right now. Um, I hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you're all staying safe and healthy out there, and thank you for listening.